Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're just now joining us, we are in the middle of a sermon on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We are now through the Beatitudes and moving into this next section, which is very powerful and is an application of those truths extending to our relationships. I'll be reading from chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Jesus preached these words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I want to encourage you uh, to open your Bible. If you didn't bring your Bible, there's a blue pew Bible right in front of you and just encourage you to bring your Bible. It's often going to be the case that we're moving through different parts of the scriptures to understand the context more fully. And you can follow along and write notes, etc. Jesus is entering into a new section of his sermon. Already the Beatitudes would have, would have struck his original audience as being so radically different than anything they'd ever heard. Happy are those, happy are those, not a shallow happiness, but a deep, central joy in light of the attributes that he's calling us to. That would have been surprising to them. Now he has transitioned from the Beatitudes to this expression of those attributes towards our horizontal relationships. And he's going to cover many subjects. And as he starts, in each section, he's going to say these words, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So he's going to be looking back. Now, to be very clear, he is not erasing the Old Testament. He is not erasing the Old Testament law. He has already said, I've come to fulfill that. But he's going to use this language. And then he's going to say, but I say to you. You're going to see this. If you look in your Bible in verse 21, as we move into the topic of anger connected to murder and reconciliation, you'll see it again in verse 27 as he deals with adultery but then speaks more specifically of lust. You're gonna see that he brings it up in verse 31 as it relates to divorce. Then in 33, as it relates to oaths. He'll say it in verse 38 in relationship to retaliation. Then in verse 43, he will say, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The gospel that Jesus is proclaiming is powerful, it's radical. I use that word as its original meaning. It's to the core of what Christianity is. And what he's doing when he says, let's look back, you have heard, but I say to you, is very significant. What Jesus is saying is he seeks to explain and interpret the law. He's gonna expand it. And as he expands it, he's deepening the meaning of the law much deeper than the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the ways in which they focus on it. 
Jesus is deepening and expanding the meaning of the law, and as he does it, he is absolutely destroying surface-level self-righteousness. He was doing it then, and he's doing it now. He is seeking to destroy the mindset that says, I haven't murdered, check the box. I haven't committed adultery, check the box. Surface-level self-righteousness he's doing away with. And what he's revealing is a deep and desperate need that we have for a Savior. And he is the Savior. As he says, you have heard that it was said. He is seeking to deepen the meaning. He is seeking to destroy surface-level self-righteousness, the way in which we would try to earn our own salvation. He is revealing our deep and desperate need for a Savior, which is him. And he's doing so each time when he says, but I say to you with authority. That's important. Because the scribes, when they would talk about the law, they wouldn't say things like that. They would quote older scribes. They would quote commentaries. Jesus never does that. He quotes the word of God, and then he says, but I say to you. So powerful was that statement that at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, turn with me to the end of Matthew 7. Jesus concludes his sermon by talking about the wise and the foolish builder. They both heard the same thing. The wise builder obeyed and built accordingly. The foolish builder heard the same thing, but did not build accordingly. He built on sand. After Jesus finishes his sermon, Matthew writes this, Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So we are hearing this authoritative word of Christ. Every time he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, Jesus is expanding our understanding. He is destroying shallow surface self-righteousness, the exterior of religion. He is revealing to us we deeply need desperately need a savior and it is him and he's doing so with authority so this he brings to the issue of murder and he connects murder to anger because it would be very easy just as we did a minute ago to recite the ten commandments and come to the one that says thou shalt not murder and then looking at the other one say well at least i haven't committed that one or to look at adultery and say well at least i haven't committed adultery but what Jesus is doing is expanding this. He is going to show us that we are desperate for a Savior. And here's how he does it. Before he moves into this topic of anger, before he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, the first of six times he's going to say it. He said this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to encourage you to think about something. When you hear the things that Jesus is saying, and if these are things you've heard before, are you taking him seriously at his words? As he moves to expand what is required, as he moves to expand the meaning of the law, to deepen the meaning of the law, 
Are you seeing that he's serious about this so that when he speaks of murder and then equates it to anger and he speaks of adultery but speaks of just looking at a woman lustily with your eye, are you taking Jesus seriously? We must. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He meant it. In fact, it gets stronger. At the end of this section, at the end of chapter five, look what it says in verse 48. Jesus says these words. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Friends, Jesus said it and he meant it. And what that statement does or those statements do is it destroys this surface level religion, self-righteousness, and it reveals a desperate need that we have for a savior because apart from Christ, we have no righteousness of our own. Not one of us is perfect like the heavenly father, but there is one who is, the perfect man, the one who's preaching this sermon. Praise God. What I'm about to share with you is I expound on this section related to anger, murder, and the tongue is very convicting, personally. I know it is gonna be for you too because of what the word God says about anger and about the tongue. This was powerful in my own heart and mind to prepare, meaning it was convicting. The Holy Spirit brought things to my mind, brought relationships to my mind, places where I needed to ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation, and that is exactly what the Lord wants for us. Because when we see what he's telling us not to do, how we're not to think, how we're not to speak, there is an opposite side of that that says in Christ, then this is what you ought to do. This is who you ought to be. And when we are those things in a dark and dying world, in a dark and decaying world, we are salt and we are light. When we turn the other cheek, when we love our enemies, when we seek reconciliation, which is hard, it's bright, it's flavorful, it's Christ in us doing what none of us can do. So let's look at these specific instructions. Verse 21, Jesus says for the first time in this sermon, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. He's about to expand that. You can't check the box and say, I've never murdered someone. He's going to expand it. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Judgment's a key word in this text. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults, that Greek word is raka. In some of your translations, like the New International Version, it'll say that. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's like the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So let's talk about what this means. Judgment, Jesus speaks about. A murderer would be liable to judgment. But not just a murderer. Someone who calls someone raka, insults them. That statement is meant to look at a person's intellect. It looks at somebody and sees an absence of any kind of 
intelligence. Words like numbskull, blockheaded. Words like ignorant. Those are all words that this would mean, and the word spoken would be meant to be an insult, to tear down, to destroy. The second word is called fool. And fool has to do more with the interior of a person. If the first one might be head, the next one's heart, the character, a scoundrel, somebody who's not really worthy of my respect. And both these words at the end mean that we think the individual that we're talking about is worthless. And so when that enters our mind and anger begins to be a part of what we're thinking and feeling, we ourselves are making a judgment. And we are making judgments all the time. We can't help it. We're scanning, listening, assessing, and making judgments all the time. My favorite book in dealing with anger is written by a man named Robert Jones. His book is titled, Uprooting Anger. Here's what he writes at the beginning. Anger is a universal problem, prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. Sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. The believer is not exempt from anger. Now, I'm not going to say this morning everything that could be said about anger. There's not time. But not all anger is wrong. In fact, there are times when we should be angry, and to not be angry would be a sin. That's called righteous anger. That's what Jesus always had. Whenever we hear words from his mouth or see actions that he's taken, it's a righteous anger. And it's righteous because he's making perfect judgments. We cannot. But there are things that we, when we see them, we should be angry about. We should be sad about the condition. We should lament the condition. We should move to, to rectify that. That's a part of how we're made. So some anger is appropriate, but it has to be righteous anger. John Trapp says it is not a sin to be angry. It can be, but it's not a sin always to be angry, but hard not to sin when we are angry. Even when it's anger that is out of a righteousness, seeing something is wrong, it's so easy then in calling that out to begin to behave in a way that is not like the salt and light that Christ has called us to be. Jesus uses these two terms, and he speaks about our speaking. Verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now this is where it's really helpful to understand how the original audience would have received this. When he used that phrase, hell of fire, in some of your Bibles, there might be a note that says this was the Greek word Gehenna. And that word had significant 
meaning in history because it was a particular location. Gehenna really speaks to the Valley of Hinnom. It's a very specific location. The Valley of Hinnom is a valley to the southwest of Jerusalem. It was notorious as the place where Ahaz introduced Israel to the fire worship of the heathen god Molech. It was the god where they burned their children before him. They sacrificed their own children in order to appease this god. Men, women burned their sons and their daughters as an offering. Josiah, the reforming king, stamped out that worship. He had ordered that the valley should be forever after an accursed place. That valley was a kind of public incinerator where things that were vile then would be taken and burned. It always smoldered with fire. When Jesus used that word, this audience would have understood immediately what he meant. It would have been graphic. There was a pall of thick smoke laying over it, bred loathsome kind of worms which were hard to kill. So Gehenna was a filthy, a place where useless and evil things were destroyed. That is why it became a synonym for the place of God's destroying fire for hell. So then Jesus insists that the gravest thing of all in man's relationships is to destroy a man's reputation. One word, one sentence, one slander. No punishment, as Christ speaks, is too severe for the malicious tellbearer or the gossip over the teacups which murders people's reputations. Such conduct in the most literal sense is hell-deserving. Now, this is where we have to ask a question. Do we take what Jesus is saying about our words, about speech, about the speech about another, seriously? Do you take it as serious as this? If someone had an inappropriate image on their phone and said, look at this, I want you to see it. And your grotesque response is appropriate. Do you feel that way when they come up to you to slander another person? to talk poorly about another person? Do you treat it the same? Probably not. We must. Jesus isn't trying to be cute. He is equating murder and anger together because of the way in which anger given through words like raka and you fool is destroying a person. This leads to the tongue, doesn't it? It's no mystery that Jesus immediately went to what's inside the person that's making them angry is now coming out of them verbally. If it doesn't come out of you verbally and it's still in there, it doesn't mean it's right to have those thoughts. So you and I begin to realize we really are desperate for a savior. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12, just a few chapters over. And I want you to see what Matthew continues to teach as he records Jesus' words about our speech. Matthew 12, 33, Christ is speaking. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, 
Jesus says these words. Is he, is there a disconnect here for what he's saying? No, because he sees perfect in judgment. And he's calling out that which is evil. And he's calling out a group that is being evil. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So friends, whatever's coming out of your mouth, when you are okay tearing someone down, when you are okay receiving the words of someone else tearing someone down, that is in your heart. Do you believe that? It's there. From, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. What that tells us is the bad that's there doesn't have to exist. It doesn't have to come out. We'll get there in a minute. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. True or false? True. He said it. It's hard to hear. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. You need a savior. I've spoken many careless words. I've thought even more. I need a savior. Jesus is being serious about the way we speak, about the way we think, about the way we feel. He is expanding the law for us to understand that a shallow, surface, self-righteous religion is never going to be enough. He is revealing to us that we are desperate for a Savior. The only Savior is Jesus because he's the only one who never once spoke or thought a careless word. Our nature, sin nature, is to think and speak careless words all the time. But for those of us in Christ, we've been saved, and with his spirit in us, we have the power actually to do the opposite, to silence slander, to not listen when someone's being torn down, to rebuke that which is as heinous, is as heinous as any of the other sins that Jesus will mention. Let's go to the book of James. If you know your Bible much at all, it's likely you have read the book of James at some time. If you never have, it's a very practical book. The section I want to look at for a few minutes is most likely in your Bible titled Taming the Tongue. It begins with a strong warning to people like me who've been called to preach and teach. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Pray for me. Pray for pastors, teachers, those who lead God's church. The call is high. Pray for our elders, our deacons, 
our leaders in women's ministry, the women who help lead this church, pray for us. It's not just what we teach in which we are judged more strictly. It's what we speak when we're in the car and nobody's listening. It's what we think quietly that can be wrong. We have to take Christ seriously. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. You are part of all. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Well, there's only one perfect man. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they carry so large, or though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. I'm going to repeat that. But no human being can tame the tongue. If you are a human being, you cannot tame your tongue. But it's not hopeless. Jesus says, or James is recorded here, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. And it doesn't take long. We just praised. It won't be long in the car, outside these doors, in the halls, at lunch, where you will be so tempted to curse people and to receive those curses, contributing, feigning the fire. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Monday night a week ago, it was the 4th of July, and whenever we're able, we go up to Oklahoma City. My sister and my brother-in-law have a good bit of land outside of Oklahoma County. And the reason that matters on the 4th of July is when you're outside the county, you can pop fireworks. She's lived there for about 10 years. We go when we can, and I never purchase a thing. The rest of my family spends more money on the 4th of July than they do on Christmas. And I don't think they care. I don't think your children care either. It is, it is spectacular. It is truly something to see. And the neighbors are just like them. So it's the best you can imagine. My nephew, Taylor, is a fireman. He works in the city of Edmond, Oklahoma. He was there this time. He's not normally there. He's usually working. I'm glad he was there. Because as the chaos unraveled, about 10.30, things were still firing, I noticed a small spark. 
And that small spark had gone outside the cut grass that was dampened actually ahead of time into the pasture. And the pasture is not meant to be watered. And so immediately the flame started. What did I do? Sitting in my chair, I just said, Taylor, there's a fire. He looked and took off running, hopped over the fence. My nephew, Josh, about his same age, not a firefighter, a mechanical engineer, he went too. I started walking. They were running. Taylor had nothing but flip-flops on. And he took off his flip-flops and began to beat the fire down. Josh took off his shirt and began to beat the fire. One person was running with a hose that was 100 yards too far away, and I was walking towards the fire. I had a part. I was praying. (laughs) But what were the women doing? The women had grabbed buckets of water, little buckets, big buckets, and they're carrying them to the place where the fire exists. It didn't take long, but about five minutes for the fire to be put out. But here's what I want you to see. When you set a spark as you talk poorly of someone else, or when you receive words from somebody else that's doing the same, do you take the words of Christ seriously and seek to put it out? Do you take whatever you have and seek to beat that fire down? Or are you there, not with a bucket of water, but with fuel, gasoline, poured on, let's torch it. That's not who we're to be, friends. In 1944, Smokey the Bear made his first appearance. It's the largest running public service announcement in our nation's history. 1944, the sign said this. Smokey says, care will prevent nine out of 10 forest fires. 1947, it changed to this. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. 2001, in April, it was changed to only you can prevent wildfires. Only you, only you. That's a fine announcement. We all know who Smokey the Bear is. We often see him when we travel places where he might be outside of a forest and it will say, danger, fire danger, low, moderate, extreme. Well, here's what I want you to think about. If there was a sign like that outside of where your small group meets, or where your friends meet to talk about God, where your Sunday morning community meets before and after, when you walk outside these doors, would the sign that reflects what's going on in your life say, fire fire danger low, extreme, moderate? For the church, we should be like a rainforest. We should be so saturated in the cool waters of God's grace that we are the people that shock the world by the light of his kindness and the flavor of salt seeking to preserve. When someone 
begins to say something that you know is going to be hurtful about another to seek to tear them down, are you there with fuel or are you there with water? I thought about the fire extinguisher in our house this week. To be honest with you, I didn't even know we had one. It's in the pantry. I don't think anybody knows we have it. I'm not sure when the last time it was inspected. Not sure it would work. But I wondered about what would happen if I gave one to my children. And I said, anytime you hear me speaking poorly about another person in the car, outside the car, in the house, I want you to shoot me with the fire extinguisher. It seems funny, doesn't it? But I wonder what we would look like on a Sunday morning if we walked in and that was present in our car. I wonder how many of us would be just coated in whatever powder that is that extinguishes flames. That's why the statement, only you, is ungodly. It's fine for a forest fire. It's fine for the public service announcement to say that, but it's not biblical. Because what Jesus reveals to us through expanding our understanding of this word is that we could never do what he's calling us to in our own strength. When Brian Varenkamp a few minutes ago was singing that beautiful piece about forgiveness, it says, forgive our sins as we forgive. You taught us, Lord, to pray, but you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. You alone, Christ alone, Christ alone in us. James said it. There is no human being who can tame the tongue. But when Christ is in us, the sanctifying work of his spirit, we actually, in him and in his power, have the ability to say, hey, shh, that's wrong. Don't say that. Or if you've already heard it, you need to go talk to that person. That's godly. We need to be there with water with extinguishers and have people around us who are willing to do the same so that the signs outside the doors of the places we meet would always say the risk is low. By God's grace, we would hope it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't, we would be the first to say, give him praise because he alone is the one who can enable that to happen. Are you taking him seriously at his word? I pray you are. I pray I am, and I'll end with this. Jesus is being serious, not cute. In his seriousness, he's also revealing the importance of urgency. Next week, we will preach on the second part of this, which is on reconciliation, but I want to at least leave you with this today. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. What I want you to see here is really beautiful. If you remember, it's easy to forget, 
So ask the Holy Spirit to help you remember. If you remember that your brother has something against you, if there's conflict, if there's been sin, repent. Repentance means turn the other direction. And what Jesus is saying here is that this is so serious. And how they would have understood it is if you're moving towards worshiping the living God in the temple, and there you remember, repent, turn. Turn. Go and be reconciled. That's scary, I know. And it's really beautiful too because in our own strength, we could never do it. We could never do it. But in him, we can. And when we do, the beauty of God taking our life revealing his presence, giving us the sense of our desperation for him, gives us as his body the opportunity to shine so beautifully because reconciliation is taking place. Repentance is taking place. People are loving one another so well. And the world will see Christ in that. And you and I know we would be so foolish to say, well, it's because of me. It's because of me. I'm that good. It's not you alone. It's him. Father in heaven, your word is so practical and so powerful. It always leads us to the foot of the cross where we see the one perfect man taking on the perfect righteous wrath of God. What we all deserved, he received. What we all could never do, he did. And the cross, Christ Jesus, your blood poured out for us, saves us. We thank you, Christ, that you're no longer there that you conquered death, that you even now are interceding on our behalf. So Jesus, would you, through the powerful work of your Holy Spirit, enable us to do what you call us to do, to love, to not murder. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.